have you ever been in the middle of a creative project and just felt like shit? <laughs> Making a creative project and sharing it with the world can be generative and life affirming. And it can also bring up a lot of feelings. It can strip away your defense mechanisms, resurface your insecurities, and even make you question your own sanity at times. Ultimately, creating and releasing a project is so worth it and one of the most beautiful things we can do in life. But you have to get through the messy middle of those feelings, and it's not always easy. Luckily, today's guest has experience with all of the above and will guide you through how to love, trust, and take care of yourself through even the messiest parts of creativity. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative, and this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Sarah Sapora. She's a writer, inspirational speaker, social media community leader, and creator of size-inclusive live events and retreats. Sarah just released her first book, Soul Archaeology, which teaches readers to cast off the chains of traditional before and after thinking and instead use strategies for self-accountability, honesty, and compassion on the journey to growth. Sarah's book is incredibly helpful and inspiring, and I wanted to have her on to share some of the book's wisdom and also to talk about how to love yourself through the creative process, which is not always easy. From today's chat, you'll learn what soul archaeology is and how to start your dig, how to build your self-love to-do list, how to get better with moving through discomfort, how to take care of yourself during even the messiest parts of the creative process, the truth about self-love, what it means to live a self-loving life, and much more. Okay, now here she is, Sarah Sapora. Sarah, I'm so happy to have you. I love you. I mean, I love who you are. I love your work. Thank you for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Oh, my honor to have you here. I wanted to check in with you, though, because I've been following you on socials, and I know that it's been like a tumultuous past 24 to 48 hours. Yes. Did you see that I had a little mini meltdown yeah. yesterday? I mean, when you're putting a creative baby out into the world, it's just a whole new level. I know books are like beyond. And I know you said you've got stuff going on with your dad's health. And I just want to see how you're feeling in this moment. I'm good. Thank you. You know, look, creating a book, which if you want to do it, I, I hope people get the opportunity to do it. But there's no way to describe what it's like to somebody, right? It's just... It's there. It just happens. And it is huge. And so it is like this slow train of fate that I feel fully responsible for. And my inner marketing director is trying to work every piece of the puzzle to make it all go. So I've, I've had this mounting pressure for years slash months leading up to this. And my dad's health is not doing well. And yesterday I had one of these moments and I just fucking hit the wall. I hit it. And the way I handle that is I just let it happen. I don't ignore it. I don't try to stifle it. I just own it. And like a little narrator, I try to be as objective about what I'm feeling when it happens. Because if I can take a step back enough to be with it and make friends with it, it owns me less. But that doesn't mean that I don't feel it. Like I feel it, I acknowledge it. And so for like a good 30 minutes yesterday, I could feel it in my body. I was activated. I was flooded. Time changed. Volume changed. I wanted to take my bra off. Like I could feel everything at once. And so I just said, okay, this is happening. This is it. This makes complete sense. I am here. I am in this. I texted a friend. I said, I want you to know I'm having a moment, but I'm fucking great. And they said, we're not worried about you. And I just let it happen. And then when I realized that I could do no more, I just walked away from it because I, I knew I had a choice that I could either continue to stew and make the avalanche worse, or I could just walk away from it. That doesn't mean I'm ignoring it. I had a conscious relationship with my meltdown in the moment. Now, 
I want to take a minute and acknowledge because we're talking about self-help and love and all this stuff. It's important to acknowledge that I'm able to do that because I have sound mental health, right? And so there are a lot of people when they're triggered versus activated, they're not able to have a conscious relationship with what they're feeling. So I knew in that moment that although I was feeling all these icky feelings, I was safe. I was fine. So that from a mental health perspective, was a real moment of privilege to be able to both flip the fuck out and know at the same point in time that I'm extremely safe and I'm okay. That's cool. Like I got that. So that's kind of the way I try to handle hard things. I, I don't ignore them. I don't deny them. I just try and make friends with them because if I make friends with them, then they just exist. And then they don't control me. And I'm not saying I control it either, because that's an illusion. I'm just saying we kind of like hang out in the same place together. You said something that I've never heard anybody describe before. You said there's a difference between being triggered and activated. What is that? Let me start by saying, hello, people. I am not a mental health professional. So I encourage everybody, if there's ever something that I say, that feels interesting to you that you want, like take it to your therapist, find somebody who's got all the credentials, because I think for you and I, the sometimes the best we can do is bring people to the table, right? We can bring them to the table and then let them know they can explore more. But one of the things that I've learned and, and I've observed over the last few years is we have a lot of people saying, I'm triggered, I'm triggered, I'm triggered, I'm triggered. And I want to go, are you really though? Are you really triggered or are you just really pissed off? Are you really triggered or are you just really flooded with emotion? So I started to research the difference. And what I learned was that there truly is a difference between actually being triggered as a mental health situation, which often happens with people who have PTSD for whatever reason, right? And when somebody is triggered from a mental health perspective, they're actually in danger. They are not able to connect to that mental thought process we just had, right? They are in physical, emotional, mental danger. When you're activated, you can be plenty caught up in feelings. You can be plenty flooded, but you're not in danger. You have the perception of danger, the perception of threat, which is different from the actuality of chemical, emotional, physical threat. A lot of times we have people saying, I'm triggered when they're really, really upset at something and they may be entitled to be that upset. But when you say I'm triggered and you are of sound mental health, it's kind of erasing those people that from a mental health perspective don't have the ability to feel safe when triggered. When we say I'm activated, I actually think it gives us quite a bit of ownership. It means we can feel everything we're feeling and that shit can flood through us like lightning and it can be overwhelming and all of those things. But it puts us in a position of agency to have a different relationship to the emotions that we're feeling at that time. It means that we can be more in control and more conscious of the experience that we have with the feelings than someone who doesn't, for whatever reason, have the mental capacity to be able to do that. Yeah. That makes total sense. I also wanted to ask you, I mean, you've created a great deal. You know, you're online sharing all the time. You've been writing for years. You've been teaching for years. But I've heard everybody say that books just take on a different level of, I want to say, like, brutality when you write them. Like, what happens? What's happening when you're writing a book? It sounds like war. It is. And it's war you signed up for. Right. right? <laughs> so I have to think that the experiences that people have writing a book are based a lot on the type of book that you're mm. writing and also how much of the writing you're actually doing. Sometimes when people write a book, they're actually doing a bit of it and they're working with a ghostwriter or an editor. And, you know, the topics may be of varying levels of depth. When you are writing something that has any memoir aspect to it, which is of your blood and of your vulnerability, and you are the one who is responsible for your own writing, it is 10 years of therapy pulled into 10 months. And while you are the same person who enters the process and exits the process, it's like a personal growth time warp. And there are so many things that you learn both about yourself as a human and about yourself as a professional. And those are very cool. Like there are some very specific things that I learned as a teacher, for example. As a teacher, I learned that there's a difference between the way I want to tell the story 
and my reader or my student needs to hear the story in order to understand it. And that's a very important thing. Having worked in marketing for so many years, it's the same kind of concept. When you're working with a brand or something, how does your audience, your core audience need to be spoken to in order to receive the message? But when the work that you're teaching is your life, it's your breakup, it's your story, there are oftentimes things we want other people to know. We want everybody to know about the details. We want them to know why he was shitty and we were awesome. Like we want to be vindicated. And at the end of the day, that shit doesn't matter. What matters is, am I telling the story in such a way that the reader learns what is of essence for them to learn? What do I want them to understand? And that is not about me. That's about them. So writing a book like this, although it involves you deeply, it's not about you. It's in complete service of the person that you want to reach. And the process of writing is cathartic. The process of writing will put you in a WrestleMania Saturday night ring special with like you and The Miz and like Hulk Hogan and every one of your core wounds at once sort of battling it out. It brings all that shit front and center. And it's actually really, really good. Like my agent once told me that if you have a book in you and you're not quite sure how to do it, just get that first draft out because the first draft is going to be dramatically different from what you end up with. And she's right. So get that first draft out, get it out. Because if there's something that you feel like burning in you, there's a reason why. And it may be that you still need to process it. You, you need to internalize it. So that's what that first draft is about. The subsequent drafts that you work on are about your craft and about how effective are you as a teacher. And by the time you get down to editing, that's when it's really about serving your audience. What do they need to hear? And it is like a complete forced shedding of your ego. And you're sitting here and you're working on something that is so powerful to you and so important. And it could have been one of the most influential days of your entire life. And your editor will turn around to you and be like, we're cutting that. I'm not brief when I speak in general. I'm not brief when I write in general. So, you know, they tell you that like your book chapter should be like eight pages a chapter. And I'm like, fuck that. My pages were like 25 pages a chapter. So I had to cut out 40,000 characters between what I submitted and what my final submission was. Wow. 40,000. That's brutal. <laughs> That's a book in itself. The process will bring you to your knees. It will pull out every coping mechanism you have, every mother wound you have about worthiness. It will test. And some days will be hard. And some days you will emotionally eat an entire 12-pack of ice cream sandwiches. and. The important thing is that you really just learn as you go and you recognize the enormity of what you're doing because there is a good chance that 99% of the other people in your life will have absolutely no idea what you're going through and they will just do their best to support you and you will feel completely alone and completely crazy, but you're not, but you'll feel like it. <laughs> so how did you take care of yourself through that process? That's such a good question. You're the first person to ever ask me that. So this goes back to a, a greater arc of what I teach because I really do try and live what I teach. And the idea of one of the things that I teach is a self-love to-do list. Yes. And the idea behind a self-love to-do list is at any given time, I figure out how it is that I want to feel in my life. And then I figure out what it is I need to do in order to create that feeling. So to me, self-love is any thought that you think or any action that you do that connects you to your ultimate you. Now, your ultimate you has nothing to do with what you weigh or how much money you make, but two things. One, your ability to be honest with yourself and not bullshit yourself at any given time. And two, your commitment to following through on what you learn. So it's really about connection to self. You can be a messy version of yourself and be completely in touch with your ultimate you. You can also look fucking amazing and have a social media photo that goes viral and have everybody think you have your shit together. And on the inside, be the most unultimate you, self-abandoning human being at the same time. Walking into this book, I knew that 
there were going to be challenges for me. So I made it very clear of how I wanted to feel and what was on my self-love to-do list. And then I was brutally not compromising on that. I was Mm. unwilling to do that. Now, the result was not always pretty. For example, from a professional perspective, my social media suffered for a really long time because I could not show up for it the way one needs to do in order to be successful on social media, which we know has a, a an air of bullshit and performance to it. I could not fathom showing up any other way than how I was feeling at that moment. And that made bad social media content. But I was willing to make that trade-off. I was also completely dedicated to what I needed. So there were things that I, I would not compromise on. Doing Pilates two to three times a week, strength training a couple of times a week, not doing anything socially that I didn't want to do, sleep, food. So if it didn't have to do with my book, if it didn't have to do with any work that I was doing that would make me any money, whether or not I was doing anything at the time, fueling my body, sleeping, nurturing it, or getting some random hugs and love from like the four or five people who genuinely fuel me, I didn't fucking care. And I didn't care how cool that looked to the outside because I knew if I did those things, I was serving myself. So that meant asking people for help. That meant turning around to my boyfriend, who we love and refer to as man candy, and saying, hey, this is how I need your help. This week, this month, this deadline, I'm going to be really busy. Can you make sure there is always grilled chicken and fruit in the house? And he would say, okay, I got it. What do you need me to do? Just come in every now and then check out my beverages, see if I've gobbled away every cup in the world and bring me a snack. Okay, got it. So bless his heart, that man for the last six months has made grilled chicken for me every fucking week because he knows that when I'm flooded, it helps me to have less food choices, to make it easier for me to take care of myself. So that's how I made it through. That's beautiful and a great example of what your work looks like in action. But can we talk about the book and dive in a little bit? What is soul archaeology and how did you come up with the idea and term? So the idea is based off the awareness that you can only look at your shit one layer at a time. So when you get to the point that something in your life feels like it's painful and and you realize that you're in pain, which can be very hard and can take you a good long time, right? You can exist not knowing you're in pain for a long time. And then all of a sudden one day be like, oh, fuck. This hurts, right? Yeah. And when that happens, you will do anything you can to avoid that feeling. Anesthetize, cope, look for an external solution. Want want the pain to be over as soon as possible. But the truth is, is that anything other than letting it happen order at a time is going to be circumventing the actual process of uncovering. It's not about looking for an external solution somewhere. It's about peeling your shit back one layer at a time. And you have to have faith and trust That if you do that process, that process of asking yourself, what hurts me right now? What can I do about that? And then following through that eventually you will move forward. So for anybody who's listening, I am five foot four and I am a larger plus size woman. I have had an emotional relationship to my body and food that has evolved my entire life and will continue. But I say, imagine I'm like Angelina Jolie and I get to like a dig site like Jurassic Park, and I look at the dirt and I go, oh, this is dirt. I see this dirt. And then all of a sudden I see like a bone sticking out of the top and I go, oh shit, it's a bone. Let me dig here. So I dig some off and all of a sudden we've got a finger and an elbow. And you're like, oh shit, I see an elbow. And then you dig some more and then you get a torso and then you get a leg. And then as soon as you know, you've dug enough to uncover an artifact. It's the same with your growth. You start off by saying, what am I feeling right now? What hurts me right now? And then you dig there. Mm. You follow that path. And you follow the path of continually saying, what hurts me right now? And moving in that direction. And as long as you keep going in that direction, you will uncover what you need to uncover. Because when we are unhappy or when shit feels out of whack, so many people, probably in your personal life, and so many people in the self-help world go, We'll just do what makes you happy. And you're like, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Like, it's like, mm, first off, if I knew what would make me happy, I'd do it. And if I could fucking do it, then I could fucking do it. So thank you for that amazing piece of wisdom. I don't play that game because 
If you've been in pain for whatever variety of a reason so long, there's no way you can possibly see an alternative to how you feel. So what I say is just, if you don't know what you want, start with what you don't want. If you don't know what will work, start with what doesn't work and remove that. And that's where you dig. So for me, like if the idea was, I'm really unhappy in my personal life because I really want actual intimacy, like real intimacy. I was 36, 37 years old and all of my friends were getting married and having kids. Like all of my theater friends were like having barbecues and shit. And I was in Vegas having a lot of sex, right? If I go, this doesn't feel good. Well, just get in a healthy relationship, Sarah. Okay, well, if I could figure out how to do that, I would. But I can start by saying, well, if this is what I've been doing, maybe this hasn't worked. So I'm just going to not do that. And it's going to suck. And it's going to feel awful because I'm not going to have different skills to replace it with. I'm not going to have helpful answers, but I can figure out what's not working. So think about it. If you're in a situation where something hurts, whether it's your work or your body or your life, you may not know how to fix it, but you can say, well, this sucks. This hurts. Okay, well, what are you doing? And then whatever you're doing, just don't do it. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, but it's very clear. If you stop doing the thing that's hurting you, you will make room for something else to grow in its place. So much of self-help is built on moving towards I know what works, but if you don't know what works, how can you do it? So just turn around, back that ass up, and just start with what doesn't work. And that's what soul archaeology is. It's looking at something. It's saying, I'm going to start and I'm going to dig here. And then I'm going to see what I uncover. And then I'm going to look again. And then I'm going to dig some more. Your book is incredible. I mean, you could spend weeks on each chapter just doing <laughs> because it really is. It's such deep work. And I also relate to you. I feel I'm a recovering codependent. And, you know, I see a lot of myself in the stories that you brought to the forefront and I also do this thing, though, where like, OK, I'll stop doing the thing that's destructive and then just absolutely panic between that and then figuring out the next step or between taking the, the next step and then whatever that result, quote unquote, will be. How do you stay calm in the in-between moments? Because those feel hardest to me. Yeah, I love that question. And I'm going to counteract like you just made a word choice there, but I'm going to devil's advocate. Why do we need to be calm? We spend a great deal of time and energy trying to avoid feeling discomfort. Uh But what if the answer was not to avoid discomfort, but just to get better at dealing with discomfort? And if you can do that, then the challenge is not how do I avoid this? It's just how do I let this move through me? How do I handle this in a less violent way? So the word that people use in spirituality, which if you got to that chapter, you saw how much I dislike it, is the word surrender, because I hate it. I hate the word surrender. And I love people who love it. That's wonderful for them. But for me, I want to be like, what do you mean I am a cynical Jew from New York City. We don't do surrender. We don't. We do overanalyze, touch it, squeeze it. If I'm hurting, like, don't tell me to surrender. Tell me what to do. Yes. Right? You know what I mean? Oh, I'm in the same boat. When people tell me to surrender, I'm like, I'm actually going to clutch it so hard. I'm going to throat punch you. Please don't tell me that. But the actuality of surrender is so much less obnoxious, yet just as hard as the concept. The actuality of surrendering is just letting something exist. Mm. Doesn't mean you have to like it. It's just letting it exist. To answer your specific question, in between that time that you've identified that something sucks donkey, and when you've got a new answer, like a new way, a new path, there's an entire sticky middle that I refer to as the falling. When we're gripping onto the pain of something, we are fighting and we'll do everything we can to avoid feeling the pain of a breakup or whatever. Like we're we're fucking fighting, man. We're fighting. And in doing that, we're adding to our sense of chaos. We're adding to the energy and the stress and the relationship that we're having. What instead, all we said was, we just have to get better at the fall because I I know that I'm safe. I know that my basic needs are met. I know that I'm loved. 
So if all I have to do is get better at the fall, it's not my job to be perfect. It's just my job to fall better. Well, how do we fall better? We stop fighting. We don't ignore the hard feelings when they happen. We don't over-identify with hard feelings, but we acknowledge them. We say, oh, this is a really terrible feeling. I let myself cry when I want to cry, but I don't make it my identity, right? All we have to do is get better at the falling because discomfort can coexist at the exact same time that we know we're safe. So we can be completely messy and sticky and have our heads up our asses at the same time as acknowledging we're fucking fine. We started out with you so kindly asking me about my meltdown yesterday. And that's a perfect example of it because in that moment, I wanted to rip my bra off. I was emotionally flooded. I was feeling all the feelings. I was crying in the middle of a WeWork in Las Vegas with like a three-day unwashed bun in my hair. But at the same point in time, I knew I was totally okay. I just allowed the fall to be what it needed to be in order for me to move through it. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's such a huge part. It's like the avoidance is actually more painful than the emotional experience of discomfort or pain. Like the avoiding the pain actually causes more pain, which is the whole point of your book. (laughs) Yeah, agree. Like when you learn something yourself for the first time, you think you're the first person in human history to learn it. I got like really into um, reading Pema Chodron and reading like some basic Buddhist teachings. And I'm like, holy shit, this is why is nobody on? And then I realized, well, don't be an idiot, Sarah. People have been talking about the non-attachment theory in Buddhism for hundreds, however many thousands of years. You're just learning it for yourself. But a lot of it really is that. How do we experience emotions without attaching to them? How do we experience without over-identifying? Because when we're in the middle of feeling something hard, we think we're the first and only person to ever go through a breakup. We think we're the first and only person to ever struggle with money or hate our arm fat, right? Like when we're feeling it, it's us, it's our pain. But like, really, do I think I'm the first woman in the history that has ever struggled with her arm fat? Or am I ever the first person in history to go through a breakup the way that I did? No, these are communal Feeling. So the sooner we realize that, it's easier to experience them without attaching them to our identity. They become experiences and not us. There's a difference between being the experience and having it. Yes, you're so right. We over identify with the experience and think that means something about us versus that it was something we went through. And it's not our fault for doing that. And and also, by the way, like in the world that we live in in social media, like we can get a lot of credit for over-identifying with experiences because it gets us social credibility, which can give us a hit of adrenaline and identity and belonging. There's nothing sexy online about not caring and, and non-attachment because it's not performative. So much of the most healthful behaviors exist for ourselves without the others of barometer around us to determine our excess. If a bear shits in the wood and nobody hears it, does it still shit in the wood, right? If we're feeling really aligned and not performing that alignment to anybody, do they know that we're aligned and are we still aligned? Well, yes, right? It's a really difficult thing to think about. Well, I want to know how you're dealing with that right now, because this book, it goes so deep and there's so much excavating that happens. But at the same time, you were talking about how now you're like in your marketing brain and having to figure out how to market it. Like, how do you balance those two worlds, being a creative and being an artist, and then also having to be a marketer? I don't. Years ago, somebody that I was friendly with, her name is Tulin. She's on social. She works a lot with larger women and strength training. We were talking about something one day and she said, you know, balance is such a myth. We all Mm. strive for balance, but Balance is going to mean different things to different people based on their core value system. If you and I have different priorities and different things that we believe in different needs, what is considered balance to me, is going to be different than what balance is to you. So instead of striving to have this performed sense of I'm juggling everything perfectly according to what society tells me, think about what balance needs to be and what is self-loving for you. And Also recognizing that sometimes balance is an illusion and just doing the best you can. And that's how I'm making it through this. 
because I'm human and I'm innately flawed and I'm just doing the best I can. And I truly am one person. I am one person behind the emails, one person behind the graphic design and one person behind the PR mailings. Like it's me. And on one hand, I'm incredibly lucky that I worked in marketing for 20 years and I can do the graphic design or the work that I do. But on the other hand, like it becomes intense. So at the end of the day, if there are only so many buckets, if you only have so many fucks, where are you going to spend them? And so for me, I stopped spending fucks on anything socially other than the tiny little cluster of what I needed to give love and receive love and every day, my family, my immediate friends, I just prioritized. So instead of thinking about balance, think about prioritizing. And when you think about what you need to prioritize, we go back to the question of what is the priority for your ultimate you in this chapter? Because in this chapter, the priority is different than it's going to be in another chapter. So in this chapter, to get through this period, what do you need right now, according to your values, to have a sense of balance and stability for you? And then following through with that. So can we define a few of the things we've talked about or around? I'd love to get your definition of self-love, like just your clear definition. Yeah. Self-love is any thought you think or any action that you do that connects you to your ultimate you. And your ultimate you is a version of you that's not defined by money, age, weight, anything. Your ultimate you is defined by two things. First, your ability to be radically honest with yourself at any given time. And two, your commitment to following through with self-love based on what you see. If you can do those two things, you will be living a self-loving life. And when you live a self-loving life, you are prioritizing self-love and the growth into your ultimate you over self-abandonment. You're either choosing a life that is of service to you or of hindrance. So do you have to discover your ultimate you prior to creating your self-love to-do list? Like, what order are these things coming in? Hey, creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person, it would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. Yeah. So remember that when you don't know what the fuck is going to make you happy, you can't possibly know what your ultimate you is, right? Because your, your head is so far up your butt and all you've known is pain. First, start with the saying, let's just be honest about what hurts right now. And then I have a very scientific, not at all, she says sarcastically, process of looking at a shit ton of words, of feeling words, because I don't play goals. I don't do bullshit goals. I don't do New Year's resolutions. I think about how do I want to feel? So I look at a list of words and if something jumps out at me, there's a reason why. It's usually the exact opposite of what hurts. It's not brain science. It's all intuition. And then I start to flesh out on that word. I say, what does this mean to me? What do I feel? So let me give you an example of what I mean. If I'm saying, how do I want to feel? Then right now in this chapter, I want to feel disciplined. Mm. So I... Think about, and I do a three-minute free write, and I say, when I feel disciplined, I will. And I go, when I feel disciplined, I won't feel harried. I'll feel rushed. I won't feel rushed. I'll sleep at night. I'll know what to do every day. I won't deal with bullshit. I just free write on what it would mean to feel disciplined. And then I say, well, what's keeping me from feeling disciplined? And I make a list of it. I don't feel disciplined because I'm tired. I don't feel disciplined because I have no idea what the fuck to do with my time. I don't feel disciplined because I have ADHD and I don't have good enough tools. I don't feel disciplined because I'm spiritually overwhelmed. I make an entire list of that. And then I flip each one of those things around. So whatever one of those things that isn't working for me, that's a challenge is also an opportunity. I literally say, this is what hurts. And then I flip it over like a pancake. 
because on the opposite side of what hurts is what feels good. I don't have to come up with the answer because if I literally just flip it around, the answer is there. So if I say one of the reasons that I'm not disciplined is that I don't sleep enough, well, then the opposite of that is sleep more. Okay. That wasn't that hard. If one of the things that is keeping me from disciplined is that I spend 30 minutes in the morning looking for something to wear and it makes me feel like a piece of shit because I don't like dealing with clothes and I hate life and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, the opposite of that is find something easy to wear, right? Like I don't try to pull answers out of my butt. I look at what hurts me and then I turn that into an opportunity. So all you have to do is start the process and your answers will reveal themselves. So it's not that you have to hunt for your ultimate you. It's that you have to listen to your pain. Right. Because your ultimate you will be some version of the opposite of your pain. You don't have to know what you want. You have to know what you don't want. That's the first step of your soul archaeology is saying, where does it hurt right now? What are you pretending not to see in your life? What are you pretending not to know? What are you pretending not to feel? Mm. And if you can answer those questions, then you will inevitably move towards your ultimate you. So in the book, you said asking plus answering plus action means you're living a self-loving life. Is that what you just described, the example of that? Yep. We have two choices. You can either live in service and self-aware, or you can live as a reaction to everybody else, not aware of your choices and just living sort of codependently or in reaction to everybody else, trying to quell their emotions, trying to quell their fear, using their perception of you as a map, instead of coming up with the thoughts yourself. You either let other people's thoughts make you do things, or you come up with your own thoughts that make you do what you need to do. Does that make sense? Yes. I love that part of the book. I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. So that's the asking and answering. Yeah. I love that. Like, what would you do if no one was watching? Would you still write? You went through like this whole list of things. Shit, you really did read this book. Yeah. How well you did. Thank you for that. <laughs> of course. It's really good. I mean, I want to go back and like not do a podcast read because when I'm podcast reading, yeah. I'm like, I want to go back and actually read it for my soul. But yeah, that part was so powerful for me, especially as somebody who has struggled with codependency, because I find it comes up a lot with my creative life. I've always sung and like made up stories and entertained. But then there's this part of me that feels like it's not worthy unless somebody else is validating it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. constantly fighting with myself between unleashing my inner creative and wanting to be seen on this global level. Can I respond in a personal level? Please, to that? please. A couple of things. First is, have you ever seen those videos on the internet of like the 90 something year old woman who has Alzheimer's and she's sitting there and all of a sudden she's a ballerina again? Yeah. I was a music major in college. Mm. I was an opera singer in college. And after school, I stepped away from singing. I had had some vocal stuff that was painful and I just didn't want to touch it. I just couldn't go there. It was raw. And at a certain point in time, I was ready to sing again. And I was ready to join a choir. And I was really scared because I hadn't sung in a long time and I wanted to be perfect. Coming back at 32 was not the same as the soprano I was when I was 24, but I surrendered to that and I showed up. I sang and I, I remember the music director just sort of looked at me and he was like, you've trained. And I was like, yes. And he's like, you're a little dusty now. And I said, yes. And he said, but you're a singer, aren't you? And I said, yes. And when you are a creative and you have something creative in your soul, that element of you never dies. It is just a question of whether it is cultivated and given room to play and get out there. But when you're a creative, we can have such an emotional attachment to our creativity because it's us. It lives in us. You can't turn it on and off. It's not a switch. That there can be like a lot of bruised ego and pain in that. And you don't want to touch it, but you do want to touch it. And am I still this if I'm not getting attention? Or if my book flops, am I still a writer? There's all this stuff because your creativity is not a Benetton sweatshirt that you can take on and off. It's in your soul. So I think when you turn around, you just acknowledge if this end result was not the end result, would I still be the thing that I am? 
And when you realize that the creation is in the process and not in the accomplishment, the bringing and breathing something into ex- in existence is in the process and not in the end result that you have a different relationship to it. It's definitely my biggest challenge as a human. Yeah. How are you dealing with that with the book? Like, I've never written a book. I don't have any prospects. I already have anxiety about whether or not I'm going to make the New York Times bestseller list based on just how I feel like other people feel about it. How are you dealing with that anxiety as a highly driven person, as a creative? Not well. Yeah. Not well, but I mean, but it just sort of is what it is, right? So there are so many different conversations that I have with myself. One of them is unfortunately driven from a business perspective. It's the idea that in order to do the work that I want to do, I need a book that sells well, because a book that sells well will show a publisher that I should write another book. Like I know what I want to keep talking about. Like the next book that I want to write is about mothers, daughters, self-esteem and weight. Needed. We need that. (laughs) I know how I want to show up for people. But if I don't do well, I don't get another book deal. If I don't do well, I can't work with corporate sponsors to help me run events, right? Like, and these are very big, big, scary things. And yes, everybody wants to make the New York Times bestseller list. And yes, if I could say that I was a New York Times bestseller, it would change the trajectory of my professional career. At the end of the day, I can just do the best that I can do. To make the New York Times bestseller list, you need like a minimum of 30 to 40 to 50,000 books in one week, okay? So there's a lot of surrender that goes into it and a lot of faith, which I really, really struggle with. But at the end of the day, you just have to believe that if you can put your head down on the pillow and at the end of the night say, did I show up for this work the best that I could and not bullshit yourself, right? If you could do that, then you've done what you can do. And then the rest, you just have to let go and let God. I am more spiritual now than I have ever been. But at the end of the day, I can do what I can do. That is really scary. It's really scary to know that I'm 44 and I've gotten to this point. And like this happened the other day, right? Like this is my copy and I was working on marking it up. And I said, I wrote this. I promised everybody listening. It wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so cool. I wrote this. No, it was like, you're a writer. You showed up for the craft. You wrote it. You took what was in your heart. You took what you wanted to say and you put it on paper. You have done your part. You will do whatever you can do. And if anybody reads it, you've done it. You you did. And it's not like, yeah, I did something. No, it's done. The train is moving. I just have to not get in my own way, which I'm really good at doing. (laughs) I'm really good at doing. So how well do I handle it? I don't handle it that well, but it is what it is. And I'm okay. I don't try and say I'm handling this perfectly. No, last night I went home and I emotionally ate five servings of organic white Cheetos while I was sitting there in my underwear, reading a crappy romance novel on my Kindle. Okay. So there we go. I'm still here. I'm fine. We're talking today. You're fucking awesome. So life is good. I'm here. God is good. Whatever you want to say, like, all right. So it just is what it is. I don't owe anybody telling them this is the greatest, most awesome process ever. No, this process is the scariest shit I've ever done in my entire life. Yes. Why do I have to tell you that it's great and beautiful and sparkly? Because that's what we see on social media. Why can't I just be like, okay, guys, this is the hardest thing I've ever dealt with, but I'm here and I'm okay. And if you want to cheer me on, that would be awesome. I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to perform what a book launch is supposed to look like so that other people can think it's pretty. Yeah, nor should you. I mean, I think birth is messy and putting a book out is creative birth. And it's painful and sometimes things go a weird way, but you're going to get your baby out into the world. That's what's most important. But it's hard because you're straddling the worlds of creativity and commerce and they don't intrinsically go together. No. Do you have people and you have a lot of people in your audience that you think are interested in writing a book? I have a lot of writers, but all of them, the thing that ties us all together is we're all doing this process of pushing a creative baby out into the world. So everyone's going to get what you're talking about. There is an incredibly sticky, vomitatious dance that you have to do when you switch between creator and business person. 
You have to get really good at wearing both hats. Now I'm decently good at it. There are other people that are better at it than me, but I'm pretty good at it. There are also a lot of people that have nowhere near the business acumen and the ability to detach themselves from the product that I do. So I'm okay, right? But like, yeah, it's freaking gross. I'm going to tell a dirty story yeah, right please. now. So when you put together a book proposal, you have to talk about the book, blah, blah, blah. And that all matters, but none of it really matters because all your publisher wants to know is how many copies are you going to sell? If your book is going to sell enough copies, then for the most part, you're golden. Most people get a book deal if they have a very, very large social media following or they're a celebrity in some way. I am neither. I am neither of those. I have a small social media following, and I'm not a celebrity. So I had to create a list of people that I knew that I thought might be willing to endorse or talk about my book. I called that list the blowjob list because I said, okay, these are the people that I will be giving blowjobs to for the next 10 years. And there was almost nothing more disgusting feeling than the process of quantifying my worth like that. But at the end of the day, it's just business and it truly is not personal. It feels personal, but it truly is just business. So when you are working a creative product and trying to negotiate that in a commerce environment, there's a level of detachment you have to have in order to not let that hurt your soul. And it may still hurt your soul. Like I lost book deals from people who were interested because they told me my social media wasn't big enough. And I've worked in social media for years and I know that social media is bullshit. And I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, you guys, I get women to fly to a different continent to hang out with me for a week. Like what is influence? Is influence getting 3 million likes on a pair of jeans or is it making a difference in somebody's life? And these are things that make sense to you and I, Yeah, but it doesn't make sense from a business perspective. But I also know people with 5,000 followers who have made the New York Times bestseller list. And in recent years, not like 10 years ago, like the woman I'm thinking of right now made it back in 2021. So- I don't know why they always think that's correlated. It's just like the same thing. I produce podcasts outside of my own. And I've had people with millions of followers who could not convert that to listens. Good content rises to the top. Mediocre stays in the middle and bad stays at the bottom. And that's kind of how it goes. Listen, I believe you. My marketing brain gets it, right? And that's why I have to have faith that if my work is good, if it's bullshit, then okay. But if it's actually good and in service of somebody, then I'm going to believe in that. And so at the end of the day, I go, okay, look, I know that I sound crazy, guys, but this is good. Like it will help somebody. Is it going to help everybody? No, but it will help somebody. And I just have to believe in that and let that be enough because- Publishing is such a tricky game and it's a numbers game. In order for that person with 5,000 followers to get in the New York Times bestseller list, maybe they had a massive email list. Remember that somebody can have 5,000 followers on Instagram, but have 400,000 on Facebook and they could have a very virulent email list. They could be connected to one person who then shares the book, right? Like, If that person has a smaller following themselves, then they're well-connected to gatekeepers enough to get them beyond their small circle. And all of those things are possible, right? Like you don't need a book deal to publish a book. You can self-publish and go to number one on Amazon if you want to self-publish. You can do a hybrid deal where blah, blah, blah. Like there are lots of different options, but the books of business is we as creatives, we want to believe that the world wants good art. Because we want good art. We love good art. Good art is beautiful. Whether it's a pottery, a dancer, a singer, an orator, a poet, good art speaks to your soul. And I hate to say jaded and cynical, but the world doesn't necessarily always care about good art. Business and commerce doesn't always care about good art. So like, I think it's a combination of having faith and being aware of what you're offering and bringing, developing a little bit of a thick skin, and then also just getting a little good at taking the punches and saying, okay, I'm taking these punches, but these punches don't define me. They're just punches. I got it. I'll move forward. Whether or not this book does well or tanks knock on wood, I'm a writer. I wrote it. I will feel good at the end of the day. This time next year, if the book has exploded and my second book deal is coming, I will pray and I will thank God 
that he allowed me to serve people, that he allowed me to use maternal nurturing in a way. I'm sorry, guys. Don't be sorry. We cry here a lot. (laughs) So I'm 44 and I've never married and I've never had kids. And I've often said that I don't believe that God would have made a Sarah if he didn't intend for her to give love to people in some way, whether that was by raising a child or whether that was by birthing a book that would help people. I feel that I have meaning and that's meaning for me. So if this is successful and it allows me to write a second book about mothers and daughters and self-esteem and weight, then I will thank God. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I will say, thank you for letting me give something. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me do that. And if it doesn't, then I will say, okay, thank you for giving me this. And thank you for letting me figure out what to do next. Mm. Sarah, this book is going to help so many people. And I do think that there's something in it for every single person. I really do. You've put so much into it. Your whole heart is in it. Your whole soul is in it. I have a question for you for reading it because I'm really just curious. Was there any part that was too hard or sticky for you, but therefore you knew you needed to read it? You know how like sometimes when you read something you go- Yeah. Okay. So, so people are like, is it an easy, fun read? And I'm like, no, it's not an easy. No, none of this stuff is easier. But you know, the whole goal of my show, the thesis statement of Unleash is to help people love, trust and know themselves enough to pursue whatever it is that's on their heart. Because I started this to be like, let me help people unblock and let me help people go after their dreams. But what I really realized is that if you don't know, love and trust yourself, everything else is beyond your reach. And what I love about your book is it gives tangible tools to do just that. So I highly recommend anyone listening, get a copy of Sarah's book. It will change your life. I'm going to be deep diving it. I'm sure I'll be talking about it on the show again. And I just thank you for sharing your heart and sharing your soul and teaching all of us that we are worthy. I really, really deeply appreciate who you are and what you do. This was really lovely and you gave me some room here and let me make some dirty jokes and cry at the same time. So there you go. What could be better than that, right? Yeah. It was an ideal afternoon for me. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for hanging in and listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Sarah Sapora. For more info on Sarah, follow her at Sarah Sapora and visit her website, sarahsapora.com. Get a copy of her book, Soul Archaeology, wherever good books are found. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests at Sarah Sapora so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you find new ways to incorporate self-love practices into your life. Try creating a self-love to-do list. That's something I'm definitely going to try. I love you, and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.